Hello and welcome to Test Podagogy. This is the podcast which brings you everything that you need to know about teaching and learning, produced by the editors and writers at Tes. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy, and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing teachers today. This season will bring you a wealth of new guests who will all shine a light on their research and how it translates into the classroom. We will also dig into our archive to bring you the best episodes from past seasons. These will have been chosen because they continue to have relevance for teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a features writer at TES, and this week my guest is Sam Wass. Wass is a professor of early years at the University of East London's Baby Development Lab. In this podcast, he discusses stress and emotional arousal and how it affects attention and concentration during the early years. To begin with, he discusses how we can define stress and explains why it's important to study the effects of stress in our youngest children. Yeah, so funnily enough, it, it's weird to think because it's such a prevalent idea in our uh, mind nowadays, but the concept of stress didn't really exist before the 1920s when a, a physiologist called Hans Salia came up, came up with the concept. And, and what he defines stress as is what our body does to mobilise responses to a changing environment. So if something happens in my environment, so something changes in my environment, then my stress response is what changes in my body to help me cope and adapt to that change. Yeah. So it's quite a kind of specific definition of stress. And it's quite different to how we talk about it normally when we're talking about it in children. So when we measure it, there's two different things. So there's the short term stress state. Yeah. So what stress state am I in at this moment in time? Yeah. Am I responding to a challenge that's happened or am I basically not? Yeah. But then we can also measure their long term stress state. So that is basically how much total change someone's had to go through over the course of their lifestyle. So that's, that's over the course of their lifetime, sorry. So that's often called something called allostatic load, which is basically allostasis is this process of correcting to change. And allostatic load is basically how much we've had to do that over the course of our lifetime. So one of the things that's really important to, to remember is uh, we're talking in I talk measure, mainly measure physiological measures of stress, you know, so what's happening in our body to allow us re- to respond to change. And um, but we know also that there are psychological aspects of stress. So, um, you know, with stress as we're measuring it is something in our body, but we know that it's closely related to psychological things like anxiety. Yeah. And we know that, you know, stress is, is often very high in children. And we know that psychologically, we're starting to diagnose anxiety problems much, much more often than we used to nowadays. Yeah. Uh, than we used to in the past. So, Things like social phobia are very, very common, uh, you know, even in young children. You know, I think the median age of diagnosis for most of these things is around about eight or nine, but they do very often come through earlier in life. Uh, things like OCD, uh, kind of nervous tics, um, kind of generalized anxiety disorder, um, and things like panic disorder, which are often slightly later developing. So I'm going to be talking about the physiological measures, you know, stress as it happens in the body. And um, but there are very strong links between this thing that we can measure in the body and the psychological phenomena that we call kind of anxiety problems. Yeah. But the, the important thing with stress is that everybody has a level of stress. It's not that you're either stressed or you're not stressed. Yeah. And as I'm going to be going on to talk about later, we actually need stress up to a point. Yeah. So there's a sweet spot in stress between being understressed and overstressed. And so in terms of like, you know, research that's because I think um, we've talked before about, you know, there's a lot of research around stress in adults, stress in teenagers, you obviously spoke about, you know, the age of diagnosis being eight or nine. But I mean, in terms of research specifically, then with very about very young children's stress, you know, what is out there already at the moment? 
Yeah, so obviously this research with young children in stress concentrates on these physiological measures. Um, um, because, you know, very simply, you know, I work a lot with, you know, 12-month-old uh, babies, you know, 18-month-olds, 24-month-olds. And obviously, with those younger children, you can't be looking at verbal reports. So you can't be asking them to report on how they're feeling. So, But we can measure things in their body. And, and we know from measuring things in the body that the basic stress system, yeah, um, uh, you know, the basic things that our body does in response to a threatening situation, they're very similar from very early development to, uh, to later development. So one of the big things that we measure is something called, um, uh, well, it's from the autonomic nervous system. And basically, we have two kind of modes in our body. Yeah? We've got what's called the um, sympathetic nervous system or the fight or flight system. Yeah? Um, and that's basically all about helping our body to mobilize our resources uh, to actually, you know, fight with something that's chasing after us or to run for our lives. Yeah. So it's all about, um, you know, our heart starts to beat faster. Uh, the bronchi, the little tubes in our lungs expand. Uh, we start to sweat. Um, Long term things like um, uh, digesting food kind of shut down. So our saliva shuts down because we need to save water for sweating because we're going to be doing a lot of running and that type of thing. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, happily, you know, I've certainly never been in a situation where I have to chase after my food before I eat it, and I've never actually run for my life. Uh, so we, we don't actually encounter situations where fight or flight is required. Yeah. But when we, our brain is sending signals to our body that we're in danger, yeah, our body still responds by activating the fight or flight system. Yeah. So this is why what a lot of people uh, think of as the symptoms of psychological danger, yeah, things like a dry mouth, things like excess sweating, things like the feeling of a pounding heart, what they're actually coming from are our brain is processing these signals that we're in danger, responding by assuming that it's actual physical danger and triggering the fight or flight system. Yeah. Um, even though, of course, you know, nowadays it's not physical danger, it's psychological danger, it's something like a job interview or an exam. Yeah. So we know that we have these systems. You have the sympathetic system and also the parasympathetic, which is basically the opposite. That's the rest or digest system. And that kicks in when our brain is telling our body that we're safe and not in danger. Yeah? So we know that we have these two systems, fight or flight or rest or digest. And we know from measuring um, uh, these states in children that we, this balance between these two states still exists. Yeah? And we know that we can see children, you know, measuring we can measure children we know that they're in you know the fight or flight stress system so for example one thing that um you know i've done some research on and lots of other people have done some research on is computer games and um, that put children in a situation of simulated danger yeah and so they're controlling you know a little cartoon dinosaur that's running away from another cartoon dinosaur so like lots of different aspects of research into advertising for example What's happening is the research is suggesting that children can't actually differentiate between this simulated danger and the real danger. Um, so they're controlling, you know, a little cartoon dinosaur jumping around, but they're imagining that they're in danger themselves and their body is reacting as if they're in danger themselves. So if you measure a child, you know, while they've been playing one of these computer games, you, you see that their body has really strongly gone into fight or flight mode. Yeah. Um, so, you know, their, their hearts are beating faster. You notice, actually, I've noticed it in my family you know, sometimes when you've been playing a game and it's quite cold in the room and you notice that you're sweating and you think that's quite a weird thing, you know, that's the fight or flight system kicking. That's one of the automatic reflexes in fight or flight. Um, so that's what we're measuring, basically, when we're measuring it in children. And as I say, you know, even down to young babies, we're measuring, you know, what, what, what state the body is in. Guys called Yerkes and Dodson um, did this research back in the 20s. They actually did it by 
um, giving little electric shocks to uh, mice and then looking at how well, how that kind of affected how they performed on kind of solving a maze. And they found that there was a, there was a sweet spot in the middle uh, between, you know, giving a little bit of a shock helped perform the maze, but giving too much of a shock um, hindered them at performing the maze. But it's actually something that if you think about it, it's very intuitive. You know, certainly if you look around a classroom, there are some children that are overexcited, yeah, and they can't concentrate because, you know, they're looking around everywhere and they're bouncing off the windows. And there are also some children that are underexcited, that are kind of sitting there, you know, with their eyelids drooping, you know, falling off to sleep. And both of those things, being overexcited and underexcited, actually associate with worse, you know, ability to concentrate on something. So ability to concentrate and ability to learn. So it is quite intuitive. Um, and the other thing that, you know, we can talk about is this, you know, it, uh, I feel that there's a tendency, you know, when we get overexcited, as a children, we often spiral out of control, you know, even further, getting even further overexcited. Um, and then when we're underexcited, eye falling asleep, we we have more of a tendency to just to drop off to sleep, you know, in an unpredictable situation. Yeah. So basically, there's some sort of pressure that, you know, when I'm moving towards either extreme, I tend to spiral out even further. Yeah. So again, there's we can talk lots about, you know, things that we can do to identify when that's happening in children and, and, and to help them when that's happening. Wass and his team have recently completed research which looks at how children who are born in the city deal with stress and emotional arousal in comparison to those born in the country, and how this in turn affects how they pay attention and learn differently. Here he explains his research and the findings. So, um, so for this research, uh, we were interested in uh, the effects of the early living environment on child development. Um, so we know that um, over the past um, 200 years, there's been a big shift um, in where most people spend most of their lives. Um, 200 years ago, 5% of children uh, were born in cities and grew up in cities. Uh, now it's over 50%. I think it's about between 50 and 60%. And by 2050, it will be 70% of the world's children uh, live their lives in cities. And this is a big deal, you know, because as I was explaining earlier, we've evolved in a very different type of life. Yeah, So our stress systems have evolved to help us adapt to life on the savannah when we had, you know, animals chasing after us, trying to eat us, and when we had to chase after our food before we wanted to eat it. So we've had this massive shift, you know, very recently in our development as a species towards increased urban living. Yeah. We know that actually most physical health outcomes uh, tend to be better in city dwellers. So life expectancy is higher and that type of thing. But we also know that in adults and older children, most mental health outcomes are actually worse. Yeah. So particularly when it comes to, you know, self-reported anxiety and depression, those kind of tend quite reliably to be reported to be higher in city dwellers compared to rural dwellers. Yeah. But what we don't know um, is pretty much anything at all about early childhood, yeah? which is really weird. You know, I was quite surprised when, when I first started, you know, thinking this might be an interesting topic to, to, to look into. Uh, and to, you know, research what's out there, out there already. And there really is very, very little research looking at how urban living um, affects early childhood. Uh, so what we did was uh, we got some funding from the um, Economic and Social Research Council, which is basically the main, you know, government-funded um, psychology research um, council. Um, and we took a cohorts of children, um, 12-month-old children, um, and we had two groups, one um, in East London, uh, where where I'm based, where you get a very, very kind of diverse group of children, um, uh, some living in, you know, very urban settings and some in much more kind of spacious settings. Um, and then uh, we took a comparison cohort in Cambridge, 
uh, where I was based when I was setting up the project. Um, and just that was a comparison because obviously you get much, much less urban density around Cambridge. Okay. And basically we designed um, uh, this kind of a, a set of sensors uh, that we very kind of carefully integrated into clothes that the babies were wearing. Um, so it was a little heart rate monitor, a little movement monitor, um, a little GPS so we could tell where they were, microphones, cameras, um, and um, so on. The, the baby wore it for a day. We aimed to capture a typical day in the life of the child, and the parent wore it for a day too. Um, and we basically just recorded everything that these children saw and heard and what their stress state was during the course of a day in their life from these 92 children. So basically, we found, um, you know, consistent with the expectations for um, what had been found in older children and adults, we found that um, city children, so city babies, uh, showed higher levels of physiological stress. So this measure that I mentioned at the beginning, so they were more fight or flight, you know, on average across the course of the day. And then we also looked at how they paid attention differently. So um, we showed consistent with the literature on how stress affects older adults, um, we found that the children um, who were at higher stress, who were living in cities, were worse at paying attention to one thing for a sustained period of time. Yeah. So very, very simply, we just assessed this by displaying static images of, you know, interesting, varied sequence of static images. How well are the babies able to keep their attention focused on it? Um, and we found that city babies who are high stress were worse at that. Um, uh, we also looked at emotion regula regulation. So we administered a mild stressor. So we got the mum to play with the baby and then just on a hidden signal to freeze, uh, which is something that all babies find mildly stressful when their mum just suddenly freezes during an interaction. And we found that the city babies who are higher stress got more upset more quickly. Yeah. Um, so those were two ways in which this, the, these high stress city babies were underperforming. Yeah. But really, really importantly, and this is something I, I definitely want to talk about more when we get on to, you know, adapting teaching practices around this, um, they weren't worse at everything. Yeah? There were some things that they're actually better at. Um, so in particular, um, we, when we looked at their ability to learn rapid sequences of information, yeah? so we presented something fast, um, and then we tested how much they'd um, kind of recalled that information that had been presented fast. We found that the high stress city babies were actually better at it. Yeah? And we also measured the, the baby's brains. Uh, and we found that this marker of kind of intentional engagement, uh, you know, theta power brain oscillations at a particular frequency, that was actually higher in the city baby. So they were engaged, it, it looked as if they were engaging their brains more when they were paying attention to something, even though they weren't paying attention to it for such a long period of time. Yeah. So, so this, as I say, is really, really consistent with the, 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 the evidence from adults about how stress affects how we pay attention. Yeah. Uh, so as adults, we know that when I'm in a high stress state, I can't focus on one thing for a long period of time. Yeah. I tend to be more distractible. Yeah. I can't have a goal in mind and act on it for a long period of time. But we also know that there are some ways in which learning is actually improved by stress. Yeah. So when something sudden happens to me, yeah, or something very fast happens to me, I retain it better if that happened to me when I was in a high stress state. Yeah. So this is exactly consistent with a pattern that we found in babies. And so talk to me about the country, um, the country born children then and kind of what, you know, I guess that they're the, the opposite to that then. Yeah. So opposite in, in a lot of ways. And yeah, it, it's interesting because I present this uh, um, kind of to early years teachers around the country. And, you know, I always focus on the high stress city kids because I'm a high stress city kid. And it's something that I very often get asked, you know, but, but, but what about the, 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 the kind of more relaxed um, children? So, I mean, so the more relaxed children were, you know, calmer, flatter um, during the course of the day. Yeah. 
they were better able to sustain on one thing. So you gave them something, you know, static to look at, and they were better able to keep their attention to it. Yeah. Um, so those were the two kind of ways in which kind of they did better. Now, the, the interesting thing, I think, um, from um, the point of view of learning is that this, what we can very easily measure in kids is, you know, if you give them something to look at, do they keep their eyes focused on it? Yeah. But what's much harder to tell is this thing that we call covert attention, which is, am I actually paying attention to something uh, when I'm looking at it? Yeah. Uh, we know that there's this phenomenon called mind wandering, which is, you know, very extensively investigated where, you know, I'm keeping your eyes on you, but actually inside, you know, I'm a million miles away. I'm off with the fairies. Um, and it, it, it's very hard, you know, if you're someone who works a lot with these, you know, more, more relaxed, uh, you know, uh, you know, rural dwelling uh, children, this idea that, you know, the child is, is getting good marks on how they're behaving in class because they're sitting, you know, staring right at me. Um, but it's very, very hard to tell as a teacher, you know, are they actually paying attention to me or not? Yeah. This, by the way, is, reminds me of some stuff on ADHD in, um, in girls that there's a lot of debate at the moment that, ADHD, you know, so ADHD, attention deficit disorder is typically di diagnosed much more commonly in boys than girls. Uh, but recently, research has come out suggesting that, in fact, it's much more common in girls than we realize. It's just very underdiagnosed. Um, and the reason why is because ADHD in boys tends to manifest as hyperactivity. So running around, you know, chucking stuff over and that type of thing. Whereas in girls, it more often manifests as inattention. Yeah. Um, but it's so a girl with inattention might will tend to sit still and behave look as if they're behaving very well in class but inside you know they're not managing to pay attention yeah so that's something that's really really important to think about you know when considering adhd and the picture with city versus rural is a little bit similar yeah so you know with city children you know you're not going to forget you know that, that they're in this high stress state whereas the low stress you know more rural children they it's very easy to be in a state where you think the lesson's going great you know because everyone's sat very still looking at you but in fact, inside, you know, they're not really concentrating. So we can talk about, you know, different ways in which you can cope, cope, cope with these different types of challenges, you know, later on. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of, you know, why then a, a child that's born in the city is high stress and, and why a child that's born in the city, is, is, it literally, is it literally down to like their pace of life? Yeah. So we don't know why it is. Um, uh, you know, as I say, stress is there to cope with changes in our environment. and. It was what we'd expected to find, you know, as I say, they've already found the same stuff with older children and adults, um, simply because life in a city is faster changing. You know, speaking as someone who, who spends um, a considerable chunk of my weekends trying to navigate my one-year-old and my three-year-old around, around uh, cities, um, there are lots of very fast-moving things. Uh, and you very, you very commonly have to, you know, change what you're doing, you know, to get out of the way of something. You know, and you're very commonly told, you know, you know, you're fine walking here, but if you walk a meter to the right, then you're in a road and there's cars and you will get knocked over and that type of thing. So all of these types of, you know, things that we have to adapt ourselves to and change ourselves to are obviously much, much more common in a city. But, you know, that's pure speculation. We don't have any evidence on why, you know, city life uh, kind of stress seems to be higher in city dwellers. But that strikes me as one likely, you know, explanation. Mm -hmm. uh, there are also other ones, by the way, you know, it, for example, one of the things that we found is um, babies tend to be strapped in more often when they're outdoors, so their outdoor environment is noisier, um, but they tend to be strapped in, whereas city, city babies, that doesn't happen so much. When you're kind of free roaming, you can, you know, help yourself to accommodate for changes in stress. Yeah. So, you know, if I get a little bit more excited, I can move around more. 
And it may be the fact that, you know, they're, they're encountering these things in a situation where they're strapped and unable to move that's, that's, that's causing, causing things. You know, but there are other reasons as well. You know, it could just be that naturally high-stressed people are more likely to move to the city um, and naturally high-stressed people have more high-stressed kids. So there's a lot of different reasons why it could be. I guess even when it comes down to things like housing, like naturally, you know, if you live in a rural place, you're much more likely to have a big garden and things like that. Whereas if you live in a city, you could be in a flat as a child, a smaller flat opposed to like a big house, the garden, which maybe could affect things too. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, we haven't actually looked at that from the point of view of causation of stress, but we've definitely, we're, we're looking at it as, I, as I'll talk about at the end. We're looking at how, you know, indoor and outdoor learning environments affect stress, which is exactly the same thing, you know. Uh, you know, you can have exactly the same size of space, but if you're indoors, then, you know, all the noise is bouncing off. If you've got other people there, you know, you've got a much, much more complex, stimulating auditory environment. Whereas the lovely thing about outdoors is, uh, from, you know, from an educator's point of view, you know, background noise just echoes up into the, into the sky. So, you know, it disappears. So you have a, you know, have a quieter situation, uh, which is, you know, less stimulating because you've got less coming at you. But yeah, it's interesting to think from the point of view of, you know, the other way around, how different types of home environment affect children. But yeah, it's very possibly exactly the same thing. And I guess we can't be as specific to say that a child who was born in a city would always be high stress and a child that's born in the country will always be low stress. It must, you know, vary within that. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, kind of if you go back to how I defined stress at the beginning about, you know, changes to an environment, you know, it's the state that you're in. Uh, you know, it's a, it, it, it properly defined as a short-term stress state, yeah? Um, so, you know, if a city kid is, um, you know, in a, you know, situation that they have to adapt to, then they will be in a high stress state just as a, just as a, um, sorry, if a country kid is in a situation that where they have to adapt, then they will be in a high stress state just as a city kid would be. It's just that overall, it seems that this is happening more often to city children than, than, than to country children. The other thing about that is we probably calibrate to stress. So, um, uh, what, you know, if I have a very calm life, there's, there's research suggesting that if I have a very calm life overall, then only a mild stressor will, will put me into an extreme stress state. Whereas if I'm used to having a lot of stress coming at me, then I become desensitized. Yeah. So I wouldn't have such a big reaction to a given stressor. Yeah. So we actually did another study looking at the relationship between noise, just how, how noisy your environment is and your stress state. And we found that times when the environment was noisier, yeah, my stress is higher. But if I'm a child who experiences a lot of noise, yeah, I, 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 I have a less of a response when something noisy happens. So I become desensitized to noise, yeah, which in a lot of ways is part of the problem and creates a lot of problems. But that's one of the mechanisms. So we get desensitized. So that's another reason why, you know, a child growing up in the country wouldn't never experience stress. Yeah, they'd experience it, you know, whenever change happens. And when a given change happens, they probably have a bigger reaction to it than a, a city kid who's more used to experiencing those types of things. Mm. And do we know anything about, you know, children that maybe have moved from one to the other and, you know, how they react? Yeah, that's an interesting question because uh, I've been talking about that with my wife because we're just thinking about moving to the country. I'm sick of so many weekends yanking our children out of the way of cars, you know, so many seconds before they drive past us. Um, uh, we don't know is the short answer. Uh, there's no research. I have actually looked in the literature quite carefully whether there's any research on this. Um, there is research that early life stress often has more long-lasting effects. So there's, there's thought to be a critical window uh, when we're particularly vulnerable uh, to stress. Um, so this is looking at kind of different types of stresses to what I've been talking about, kind of adverse childhood experiences, it's called. So it's things like, you know, parents splitting up, you know, 
rows in the family, domestic abuse, and that type of thing. Um, and there's research from that kind of a, there, there, there are papers from that area of research suggesting that if we experience those types of events during early life, then they can often have very, very long lasting effects. But if we experience the same thing later in life, we're less vulnerable. So, you know, you have a critical window where you're especially vulnerable uh, during, during very early life. But as I say, that hasn't been looked at from the context of city versus urban and city versus country living. It's only been looked at in the context of these much more extreme stresses. So taking this research into consideration then, how can teachers spot a child who has a high stress profile or a low stress profile in their class? One of my favourite experiences in the past few years was uh, um, it, uh, I had a student um, who was actually assistant head at a primary school um, and we were talking about this with her and she decided for her research project that I had to supervise, she was going to put these little stress monitors on the children in her class uh, who she already knew very well um, and rather than doing a, you know, a study with lots of numbers, she just dis she measured their stress levels and then described how having a readout of what their internal stress was like how that had informed her understanding of the children. Um, and for most of them, she could predict quite well, you know, whether they were going to be fight or flighty or rest or digesty. Um, um, but for a couple, she couldn't, um, which was very, very interesting. And she did say, um, you know, this has really changed, you know, looking at what this child's like, you know, internally in terms of their physiology has really changed how I think, how I, how I interact with this children, this child. You know, so most of the time, a high stress state associates with more movement. Yeah. So a general proxy is, you know, if you've got a child that's moving a lot, um, then um, then they're probably more likely to be in, you know, fight or flight mode. Um, and if you've got a child that's sitting very still, then they're, they're then they're more at risk of being under stressed. But there are certain ways in which a high stress state can manifest as what we call a freeze response. Yeah. So this is quite well studied in in animals. And if you think about it, you know, it is something that, that definitely happens. So Sometimes you can be in a really high stress state and actually not moving at all. Um, and what this um, uh, student of mine, Gemma, um, uh, noticed was there was one child in particular who didn't tend to move very much and didn't tend to talk very much. Um, and actually, um, so she'd assumed that the child was quite calm. But in fact, their stress states were much higher. But that's still true as a general rule. You know, for most children, you know, how much they're moving is a good good measure of how, how, how stressed they're feeling. Um, but also, of course, kind of those rules that I talked about, about, you know, distractibility um, and ability to focus are really, really, you know, strong markers of stress. Yeah. So when I'm, um, you know, in a high stress state, I find it harder to think, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. I'm also much more sensitive to background noise. Yeah. So I spend a lot of my time on trains, you know, rushing to finish a talk before I'm supposed to arrive somewhere and give the talk. And I definitely notice in myself, uh, when I'm in a high stress state, I find it much harder to filter out background noise and distractions. Yeah. So I'm more, no, more affected by someone talking in the road behind me. Um, so those are ways that you can tell, you know, just from looking at the, how your child is, you know, performing cognitively. Yeah. If I, if I'm not very good at focusing, if I'm very distractible by any noise, that type of thing, that's more likely to be a sign that I'm in a high stress state. And what, what about the low stress state then? Yeah, so it's interesting. So, so I've been doing, I do some work at the moment with the Benny's chain of nurseries um, as an educational consultant. I've been spending some really interesting days um, just sitting in nurseries, uh, uh, react, it's just observing children, you know, trying to blend into the wall. Um, and it's really interesting, you know, as I said, I, I tend to think just because I am one of them um, about high stress city children. Um, but it's really interesting to watch how a lot of the children, you know, I, I was thinking more from observing those children about that 
You know, I'm calm to the point where I'm almost too calm. Yeah. And, and what you get a lot of is, you know, is children, you know, sitting, kind of observing what's happening in the rest of the room, not necessarily interacting very much. You know, if I'm a baby, you know, in a, in a childcare setting, you know, there's, there's, there's always something going on for me to watch. And, and a lot, what, what it feels to me that a lot of the low stress children are doing is, you know, sitting, you know, often on their own for very low, long periods of time, you know, watching what else is going on. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, you know, they're very, um, kind of thoughtful and interested in this in uh, Fennies. And we're actually doing some training material for the, uh, for the, um, people kind of working in their nurseries about, you know, how to identify these different types of pattern and what to do with these ones that are more at the risk of, you know, they're, 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 they're at a kind of almost an understressed state. You know, they're, they're quite distant. They're quite, you know, observing, but they're not really kind of interacting. Yeah. Cause obviously, you know, we know from learning that, you know, interaction is often the best driver of, uh, best driver of learning. So if I've got a child who tends to be more distant, you know, often, even if they're quite content. Yeah. They're just content, you know, sitting watching. How can we get them into a kind of a more stimulating situation? In order to get these children into those stimulating situations, should teachers adapt their learning environment and indeed their teaching styles? How could they tailor their approach according to stress profile? Is this even possible given the time and resources that early years settings have? Yeah, so there are various different ways that we can think about adapting the environment to cope uh, with these different types of child. Yeah. So if I'm a high stress child, and I, I've seen this very vividly. I remember just observing one child who, you know, often, it's, I'm not sure it's very good science, but often the children that you remember, the ones that you massively identify with, and this particular child, he just was a four-year-old version of me. Um, um, and there were two, I remember observing that child in two different situations. Um, so one was kind of an indoor space, um, you know, probably about 20 square meters. Um, with no um, kind of fabric or material, yeah? Um, um, and the, we, it was free play. It was a free play session. So we had 12 four-year-old children in this indoor space. They were all kind of moving around unpredictably. Yeah, four-year-old children are unpredictable. Four-year-old children find other four-year-old children unpredictable, which is why high-stress children very often gravitate to adults just because they're much more predictable. Um, so we had this particular child who was naturally quite a high-stress child in a situation where it was quite noisy, yeah, we had 12 children, there was no external structure, um, um, everything was quite unpredictable, quite, quite stimulating. And in that type of situation, this child just really, really couldn't cope. Yeah. Um, and what happened time and time again was, you know, his stress would spiral out of control. So we're going to get on to, you know, how we, what we can do about that, how we can stop that happening. But he would go into a, you know, tantrum, he would do stuff that he knew he shouldn't do. Yeah. So, you know, we'd seen him explaining to a child the day before, you know, sharing is caring, you should be sharing your toys, but then he would go off and start to snatch a toy off them. Yeah. Despite the fact that intellectually he knew that wasn't what, wasn't what he should be doing. You know, he's a very smart kid. Um, but so that type of environment, noisy, unpredictable, child-led, yeah, is exactly the type of the situation where a high-stress child will struggle, yeah, because those are all factors that if I'm already high-stressed, it pushes me further away from the sweet spot, yeah. But exactly the same child in a different situation was absolutely flourishing. So this was um, four children in the same space, so noisy, but there, there, there weren't any children in there, so it was quiet. Um, it, four children, one adult, asking questions about, you know, some creepy crawlies that were coming in. The adult was very strict with the child. 
They said you have to you know, hold up your hand and ask a question before you answer it. So he was, you know, asking loads and loads of questions, really, really bright, interesting questions. Um, um, and you could tell that he'd really, really remembered what he'd learned afterwards. So, so that type of environment is, was perfect for this high-stress child, yeah? That was a controlled environment that wasn't noisy, that was very predictable, yeah? Because he knew that there were rules and he knew what had happened, yeah? So what was interesting, though, was that the, 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 the two situations that were ideal for this high-stress child, were the, the, it was actually the opposite for the low-stress children, yeah? So I remember watching, you know, during the creepy crawlies, the four children sitting very quiet. The other children were sitting there, their eyes drooping, you know, falling asleep. You know, they, they, they needed things to be a bit more exciting to really get engaged with it, yeah? Whereas the first situation I described, the free play, you know, noisy, chaotic, unpredictable, they were doing some really, really good learning, yeah? So in a lot of ways, you know, what you want from your environment is, is influenced by what your starting state is, yeah? So if I'm naturally high-stressed, I want things quiet and predictable, and I don't need stimulation coming at me from the environment. If I'm naturally low-stressed, then I do need stimulation coming at me. I want things to be more unpredictable, more child-led, you know, more high stakes. You know, it helps if there's an obvious winner or loser, you know, and those types of things. Um, it's very similar, by the way, when, when I'm talking about this, I often start to... to kind of students, I often start by saying who works best in an open plan office uh, versus a library, uh, sorry, versus at home, uh, an open plan office or a library or at home. Yeah, um, I'm a naturally high stress person. I get precisely zero work done in an open plan office because I'm always paying attention to people around me. Yeah. Um, um, so I work much, much better at home. But people who are naturally low stress often say they work better in an open plan office. Yeah. They say when they're at home, you know, they find themselves dropping off to sleep in the middle of the day, you know, that type of thing. So they benefit from the stimulation. So it's exactly the same idea when you're thinking about how different education environments might affect children. I mean, and so like as a teacher then, how how do you manage that in terms of your environment? Is it is it about um because obviously, you know, you, you like we said before, you're probably going to have a mix of these children in your class. So is it just about kind of doing activity, making sure that throughout the day, everybody's catered for at some point? You know, how do you manage that then? Yeah, so there's partly that. Um, another thing that we're just working on for this work that I'm doing with Fennies is we're, we're thinking about trying to design different settings so that children can self-calibrate. Um, so, um, you know, children are often aware of this, you know, what types of situations they feel best in what types of situations they find it easiest to control their own moods in and so on. Um, but it, it's not something that I've actually ever come across in terms of how educational settings are designed. Uh, this idea that, you know, I might want a big open stimulating area or I might want somewhere quiet and calming and snuggly and relaxing. Um, so we're, we're, we're trying this. We're, we're looking at ways that we can design, you know, one big nursery um, so that there are some big kind of stimulating things and some quiet and snuggly things. And then it'd be really, really interesting to watch, you know, do children gravitate to different areas? So, so that's one thing, you know, that's possible to varying degrees in different reception classrooms. You know, obviously, as you get into older education, then that becomes harder and harder. But, you know, that's definitely something as well that we're looking at. You know, of course, though, it's hard. Uh, and I'm very used to having this conversation with teachers and, you know, everyone's saying, you know, that's all very well, Sam, and I can see that as well predicted by the science. But how am I supposed to do that with all my children at once? So, yeah, I don't have an easy answer, I'm afraid. I guess maybe the teaching styles then is something that maybe is a bit easier for a teacher to be able to adapt on this sort of research rather than those, you know, big things that we need to change about the design of their setting, which is obviously always going to be really hard for them to enact. Maybe the teaching styles would be a bit easier. Yeah, definitely. So. Um, yeah, so there's, there's kind of quite a lot to say about that. So 
the first thing comes back to this really key idea that it's not that the way that our educational system is set up at the moment, placing a high value on the ability to sit still for long periods of time, very much plays to the strength of the low stress kind of rural children. Yeah. But the really, really important thing is that this profile of the high stress city children is one of strengths as well as weaknesses. Um, so there's quite a big um, move um, in America, something called the Hidden Talents Program, um, to actually think, you know, how, how can we adapt our teaching style um, to play to the strengths of, uh, you know, high stress city children, which is all about, you know, things like adapt, you know, it definitely goes as far as adapting this, the style in which we do assessments as well, because assessments, you know, this ability to sit still and do one thing for a long period of time is something that is a prerequisite for doing well at, you know, such a wide variety of different kind of education assessments. So is there a way that we can assess children that means that they don't have to, you know, sit down and do one thing for a very long period of time? Because it really is, you know, a lot of jobs, you know, I was on the news and I was uh, thinking uh, on breakfast TV and I was watching the what the presenter was doing and, you know, they sat there with their desk and their mug in front of them, but then they've got three different screens below the desk and they've got two different people talking to them in two different earpieces and they're managing to have a conversation with me at the same time. And, and I was thinking, you know, the types of things that these high stress city children are good at, you know, they're really valued and they're really common jobs that we have to do in our day-to-day lives. So it's really a question of, you know, how can we be changing, you know, education to, 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 to suit, you know, A, what we're getting in the children, you know, what these children are actually good at, but also, you know, what they're going, the types of jobs that they're going to have to be doing when they're grown up. So in, in the classroom then, if you're, you know, an EYSS teacher, um, what sort of, have you got any, you know, because that, that's more like a systemic change that you think maybe should, should happen. So have you got any more, like, you know, practical things that they could be doing in the classroom they could get in at tomorrow if they wanted to, you know, to try and support these children? Yeah, so I, I think... Being aware of this, the, the, you know, the starting point is the child is, is, is key. And, you know, you definitely want to be doing different things with different types of children. Yeah. Um, one thing that probably works with all children is um, things like, so controlled breathing and controlled singing, funnily enough, will be something that, you know, if, if you've got a classroom of 30 children, they're all at different stress states. Yeah. If you want to get everyone into the same straight state, something like controlled breathing and controlled singing might be a really effective way to do it. So. Um, one of the, so basically the way that emotions work is more complicated than we realize. And if we fake our body to behave in a certain way, yeah, then our mind actually starts to think that we're in that mood. Yeah. So one of the reasons that singing is a really, really good way of controlling our emotions is when we're singing, we're, we're forcing ourselves to take these big, deep breaths in, and then you let the breath out very, very slowly. Yeah. Which is naturally how we breathe when we're calm. Yeah. When we're, when we're anxious, we tend to breathe very high in our lungs and very fast, yeah? And when we're calm, we breathe very long and very slowly. So forcing yourself, so singing forces your body to breathe as if you're calm, yeah? Um, and that can actually have the effect of help, helping you to calm down. So so if I've got a classroom of children who are all at very different starting places, that's why a lot of teachers are saying they find those types of um, exercises very effective because they, 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 they pick up the ones who are falling asleep. You know, you, you're, you're doing this reasonably intense thing of breathing and they, they, they calm down the ones who are a bit overexcited and they get everyone into the same state. Yeah? Um, so that's something that's definitely worth doing. Um, I think for children who, who tend to be kind of more to this under-stressed state, 
you know, in a way, it's being aware of that. that I think that's the really important thing. My experience of, you know, this idea that being understressed also associates with less good learning, you know, it is not something that from my experience is very commonly something that teachers think about. So, you know, the, in a way, once you're aware of that, it's quite obvious what to do about it. You know, we already talked about, you know, making things more child-led, you know, getting them to talk, putting them in a situation where, you know, the other children are aware how well that child is doing. You know, all of those types of things are all ways of which are kind of making a situation gen, gen, generally more stressful. So, so in a way, you know, being aware of the low-stress child is, is enough and you, you can immediately think of things to do. I think for the high stress child, you know, lots of there's lots of research, you know, about this idea of, you know, stress states spiraling out of control. You know, we talked about, you know, breathing as a way of controlling for that. There's loads of stuff about, you know, metacognitive awareness, um, to mindfulness, uh, you know, talking to children about the situations in which that happens, kind of what are the triggers, you know, not doing it at the time, but doing it, you know, sometime afterwards, you know helping that child to understand that they don't want to be in that state. You know, it's, a, you know, speaking as someone who's in that state quite often, you know, it's not a very nice state to be in. My experience is children always feel exactly the same thing. So, you know, how can a child identify those moments when they're about to spiral out of control, you know, and help them to calm down? You know, definitely, you know, quite a large evidence base now for things like mindfulness, um, as well as these, you know, um, controlled breathing things as a way of kind of managing the mood. So, no, it definitely is it's a combination of, you know, some things that you can do that work for everybody at once, but also just, you know, thinking about the individual children in your class, thinking what state are they in? You know, how can I help them to get to that sweet spot in the middle, uh, which as far as we know is where everybody does their best learning. One other thing with high stress um, children is what from our observations they very often do is they tend to you know, get into a situation where they're basically self-stimulating. Yeah, so they're banging a spoon on the table. You know, football managers do the same thing with chewing gum. You know, children, you see it, you know, very common with children with ASD, they'll do hand flapping or something like that. But those types of behaviours are very, very common. You know, these repetitive kind of movement behaviours, yeah? Those are the reason that they do them. Um, speaking as someone who, you know, even as a grown-up, I do a lot of those types of things myself. I'm very fidgety and I like to have something that I can, you know, constantly be moving with. The reason that they do them is because it helps you if you're, if you're in a state where you tend to be very up and down, yeah? Doing something constant and repetitive helps you to stay in one mood state for, for a flat period of time, yeah? If you're interacting with that child, you know, at home or in a classroom, yeah? It's very, very tempting just to tell the child to just stop doing that, yeah? Stop banging that table, yeah? It's making a noise, you know, it's distracting to the children, it's, it's hard. But telling the child to stop doing that doesn't help that child at all, yeah? In fact, makes the job of that child very much, much harder, yeah? They've started to do this as a way of helping themselves to manage their state, yeah? Maybe they feel like they're getting out of control and, they, and, and this kind of repetitive, you know, like chewing gum, you know, it just helps us to keep stable, yeah? So telling a child to stop doing that is, makes life for that child much, much harder, yeah? So a much more effective way to do it is to find something else to swap in instead, yeah? Something that has you know, the same sensory feelings that will do the same job for the child as the child is trying to do by banging the spoon on the table, but which won't make so much noise. Yeah. So, you know, I've got a three-year-old who's a, who's a mad, a mad banger and we have lots of kind of soft things next to him. So, so when he can bang, he can still bang, uh, but he can bang something soft so it doesn't hurt the nice wooden table and so on. Yeah. So there's loads of examples of similar ways to do that in school. Um, so that's one thing that's um, uh, important. Yeah. Um, and another thing that, that is quite a tricky thing, and this is actually something I don't have a clear answer on, is 
most people, when you're in a school and you've got a child who's starting to get overexcited yeah, and to spiral into, you know, what might be a tantrum and that type of thing, their immediate action is to be very, very calm themselves, yeah? So they've got to set a good example. So the calmer I am, yeah, uh, the, the more that will help the children uh, around me, yeah? In fact, there's evidence that doing exactly the opposite, yeah, is in some situations a more effective way of helping the child, yeah? Um, so there's this um, American um, uh, psychologist, uh, pediatrician, Harvey Cart, who I work with quite a lot. And he, he's got um, a lovely way of, you know, when you're, when you're talking to a, a, a toddler, kind of trying to match their, the way that they're talking. So talking very short sentences, talk very emphatically, don't do this, you know, I'm the grown up and I'm very sensible, yeah? Rather try to match the affect in their, in their voice. Um, um, you know, show that you understand what it is that they really want, yeah? And then once you've matched that affect and you've got that emotional connection with them, that's a way, that's the time to help them to calm down. So we actually did a paper on this with babies suggesting that um, when a child has a, when a baby, a 12-month-old has a spike in their own stress levels, yeah? The more the parent has a spike in their own stress levels. Well, first we showed that parents do have a spike in their own stress levels when a baby has a spike in theirs. But we also showed that parents who have a more of a spike, their baby actually calms down more quickly, yeah? So it's this idea that, you know, in fact, with a high-stress child, bringing your own stress up to match their stress state and then try to take them down is more effective than just staying very, very calm and very reasonable, yeah? And um, I actually had a, a, I was presenting this to a teacher and he was saying, um, he's, he, he's my age, but he was talking like he was an old hand at teaching. And he was saying that this idea, um, you know, really explains for him the voyage through being a teacher. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you need to, you need to match their stress state, but of course you can't actually be in the same stress state. You know, the, the way a therapist talks about it is, you know, you have one foot on the river bank, um, and one foot in the boat with a patient. Yeah. And that's basically how you should be thinking of it with a child. Yeah? You have one foot in there, you know, empathizing with their excitement and, you know, how much they want that thing or whatever it is. But then you have the other foot, you know, that's, that, that's on the bank, you know, being there, you know, this is, this is our overarching aim in this situation. I know I was talking about this to a friend who's, with, with a, with a with a friend who's a teacher. Um, and he was saying it's really interesting. He thinks you have a sweet spot in the middle of your teaching career uh, when you can do that. So you can get excited when a child's getting excited, but keep your other foot on the riverbank. When you're a young teacher, you tend to have both feet in the boat with the, with the child and you find it very, very hard to you know, keep that level of sanity. But then also he said, when you get too far into your career as a teacher, you find it really, really hard to get excited when the child gets excited because you've seen it all happening before. So you tend then to be more, you know, both feet on the riverbank and you find it harder to match your kind of excitement state to the child. So I quite like that. You know, obviously everyone's experience is going to be different, but I quite like that as an idea. I guess as well, you can see how it could be the other way around. So if you've got a low stress child who is really lethargic and, you know, maybe they're falling asleep or whatever. If you're in their face going, come on, let's go, let's go do this or that, they might, in, in, in the same thing might happen. So you kind of need to lower yourself to be calm and then gently rise together to be enthusiastic. Is that interesting? Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I never thought about that. I, I, I'll try that actually next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ted's Pedagogy. Please join us again next week.